All right, turn to John 15, please. John chapter 15. And uh, this morning is one of those uh, joys of preaching with the passage that we're looking at, mainly because we get to exalt and rejoice in promises that we have in Christ because of his gospel. There are some hard texts uh, throughout the scriptures, a very sobering text. John 15 actually is, is one of those. On one side of it, we've looked at that. But this morning, we are looking at the blessings and the promises uh, from the gospel that we see here. John chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. You do know, if you have been here for the last few weeks, that we've been looking at these 11 verses from two different perspectives. We've been looking at them from the true and then the false. We first looked at this passage from the negative side, which you have to do the negative side, and what the story tells us about false gospels, false vines that have not been planted by God, barren branches that are not connected to Christ, branches that are ultimately thrown into the fire and burned. But then we turned a corner last week, and we began to look at the same story from the positive side. We move from the false gospel worn to now the true gospel pictured and the many blessings that Jesus promises. Note the key word, blessings promised to those who abide in Christ. 11 times that word is used. Look at verse four. The command, abide in me, Jesus says. Verse five, he who abides in me. Verse seven, if you abide in me. It's another way to describe saving faith. It's abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ, enduring in Christ. It's a definition of true faith. True faith remains attached to Jesus. Saving faith clings to Christ. It's permanent faith. It's not fleeting faith. It's important for Jesus to emphasize this. Why? Because Judas is coming on the scene. The fleeting faith person, the selfish faith follower, not a true believer. So throughout this parable, we've seen warnings that Jesus makes to that side, those who don't remain. But now again, we have promises to those branches that do abide, that do remain attached to Christ through abiding, saving faith. So as we begin looking at this, just think of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, great text. It's a blessing, a praise. Ephesians 1, 3 says this, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just consider that, let it sink in. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, gospel blessings, These blessings of the gospel are innumerable. They fill heaven. They're infinite in their goodness. They're found in Christ. They're eternal in their character. Blessings that were promised to us before the foundation of the world. So blessings that cannot be grasped fully because they're too wonderful, too astounding, too gracious, too merciful. And yet in God's goodness, his grace, he chooses to bless us in his son through his gospel. 
This is the positive side, the rejoicing side of our salvation. And that's what Jesus is now doing here. He's showing us these spiritual blessings. He's only scratching the surface. He gives us six of them, six blessings, six promises for all who abide in Christ, for every true branch, for all have come to him in saving faith. Last time we began looking at the first two promises, you remember promise number one. Promise number one, for all who abide in Christ through saving faith, Christ promises to sever our attachment to this fallen world. To sever our attachment to this fallen world. Before we can be grafted into the true vine, the master gardener, God the Father, must make an initial cut. He must clip us from the false vine we were once attached to. He must sever us from this world that we loved. He must cut us from the world's lust. He must break the world's power and pull over us and remove us from its coming judgment. That's what he does, and that's what he promises in verse three. Notice what he tells, Jesus tells his apostles. He says, you are already clean. That word clean, same word, translated pruned, cut, clipped in verse two, translated translated this way, you are already severed, you're already detached. It's a garden picture of the miracle of regeneration. It's that miracle when our heart that once loved this world, darkened heart, we love the things of this world, that was replaced with a heart that loves Christ and longs now to obey Christ. So salvation means at its very center that we have been severed from this fallen world. It's pull and it's coming judgment. We then looked at promise number two. Promise number two, Christ also promises to prune all the branches that abide in him. Christ promises to prune those branches, us, to fulfill the very reason we were created. And what is that reason? To bring glory to our Savior, glory to the Father. So look at verse two. Again, speaking of the master gardener, the father prunes us, Jesus says, every branch that bears fruit. Why? So that it may bear more fruit. Why is this fruit bearing necessary? Verse eight, because my father is glorified by this, by what, Jesus? That you bear much fruit. It's why we've been created to glorify our God. There's no higher calling. Because of the gardener's great love for us, his love for his own glory, he promises here to prune us to do whatever it takes, to do whatever it takes so that we will bear fruit for his glory. Sometimes that's painful, isn't it? We looked at that last time, painful. There's sorrow involved at times. But this is how much the gardener loves us. We developed all of that last week. Let's note the final four promises that Jesus gives here, the final four promises that come from his gospel. And as you will see, as we build this, each promise becomes more breathtaking than the previous. Promise number three, begin here. Promise number three. For all who abide in Christ in saving faith, Christ promises to graft us into himself. 
forever. Christ promises to graft us to himself forever. He severs us from the world, but now he grafts us to himself. We sang it earlier. All the songs we sang were themes that we'll look at here. This is the promise of eternal security. This is the promise of assurance of salvation that once we are Christ, united to him through saving faith, we will never be lost, never be discarded, never removed from him. So watch how Jesus builds this. Look at verse four. There's a command. He says, abide in me. Okay, now that's a command to the apostles. Now notice though, these are the same apostles who Jesus just said were pruned from this world. Same apostles who are attached to him in verse three. So they're already regenerated. They already have that new heart. And yet still Jesus commands them to abide, remain in me. There's an intensity here. Jesus uses the aorist tense. Make a conscious decision to abide in me. That's the call. There's urgency. Resolve yourself right now. Right now, resolve yourself to stay believing in me. Maintain your faith in me now. You have to ask, why the urgency? Why the urgency here? Well, remember what's going to take place in a matter of moments. The religious leaders, Roman guards, the betraying disciple, they're all on their way to arrest Jesus. This will come as a shock to these men. They'll see Christ taken into custody. They'll see him crucified as a common criminal, buried in a tomb. Each of those events being a temptation to let go of Christ turn back. So Jesus commands here, remain in me. Keep believing in me. Now let's draw some application. This is a necessary reminder for us, a necessary reminder that we must never take our salvation for granted. Nowhere in the Bible does the promise of eternal security negate the call to continue in the faith to maintain faithfulness, to press on, to endure, to fight against sin, to battle the temptation of unbelief. Saving faith is persevering faith. It's Philippians 2. Work out your salvation. Make a conscious daily decision to remain in Christ. It's a spiritual battle. But notice, though, what Jesus now assures the apostles. The command, abide in me, but now notice the assurance that he gives. I'm calling you to remain in me, and here's my promise, I in you. Abide in me and I in you. I will be attached to you. I am grafted to you. I'll remain in you. These are just staggering words. Jesus is vowing an indissolvable spiritual union with him. It's an unbreakable grafting between the vine and the branch. 
And Jesus is taking this, again, garden word picture to the extreme here. Jesus is saying that salvation is not just the branch being grafted to the vine, though that is wonderful. Even beyond that, even more, salvation is about Christ being grafted to us. That's the word picture, that's the promise. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Look back to chapter 14. Chapter 14, again, chapter 15 is just a word picture of a previous promise. Notice verse 20. Chapter 14, verse 20. Jesus says, I am in my Father. It's an eternal, inseparable union between the Son and his Father. I am in my Father, which is then compared to our union to Christ. And you in me. It's the grafting of the believer to the vine. You and me. But then notice the next promise that Jesus makes here. Again, it takes us out of our league of full understanding. And I, the eternal, infinitely glorious son, I in you. Again, that's staggering. The branch is not just in the vine, but the vine is also in the branch. That's why the union is unbreakable. That's why the branch need not worry about ever becoming unfruitful or discarded. Uh, Look back to chapter 17 of of, uh, verse 17 of chapter 14. Again, the, the promise and the story of chapter 15 is another way of expressing verse 17. The spirit of truth will be in you. And then verse 18, I will come to you. Jesus comes to us, he's grafted us through the Spirit. Again, the promise here is a permanent sealing that takes place between us and our Savior through the Holy Spirit. This is mutual indwelling. The vine in the branches, the Savior in the believer. All of it through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the sap that unites us, that grafts us to the vine. And this mutual abiding, this union, this grafting, that theme carries through John's writings. It was so essential for John to grasp and also write to the believers. Listen to 1 John 3. 1 John three twenty three. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, that we abide in Christ. That's the commandment. Verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. That's the fruit of obedience. It shows our abiding. We're fruitful. It shows the genuineness of our faith. Then note what John says next here. Not only does the believer abide in Christ, but he in him, Christ in him. He abides in us. He's grafted to us. How? By the spirit whom he has given to us. It's the promise of assurance. Union, same promise, 1 John 4, 12. God abides in us. Let that sink in. God abides in me? 
We abide in him. Again, how? Because he has given us his spirit. 1 John 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him, remains in him, and he in God. It's that mutual indwelling, this indissolvable union between the believer and God. There's no closer connection we could enjoy with Jesus. No closer connection. We're in him. He's in us. And again, how important in chapter 15 to emphasize this. Jesus is being taken away from them. The promise is he will never leave his own. Now just think of the implications here. Draw some application implications. What is true if this mutual grafting actually happens? What is true for the believer? There's more we could have listed. I just listed three. Number one, because Christ is grafted to us and we are grafted to him, nothing can ever separate us from the love of the Father. Nothing. Why? Because for the Father to withhold his love from us this mutual grafting, for the father to withhold his love from us would be the father withholding his love from his son. That's how united we are. The master gardener will not hurt the vine by cutting away its branches. Won't happen. Second, because Christ is grafted to us and we're grafted to Christ, nothing can sever our unity with the Godhead. Again, to put that in John 15 imagery, the gardener will not abandon the branches because that would mean abandoning the vine. That's how secure we are. That's our assurance. And then a third implication, because Christ is grafted to us and we are grafted to him, nothing can ever dissolve our fellowship with Christ. His love for us will always flow through us. Go back to verse five. This is why he promises that we will bear fruit. It's how united we are. I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me, and I am in him, mutual grafting, mutual indwelling, because of that union, because the spirit flows through us, the promise he bears much Fruit, why? For apart from me, you can do nothing. We'll never be apart from Christ. Never be cut away from the vine. And all of that, all of that, because of the gardener's love for us and because the spirit is given to us. And thus, we can rejoice in the gospel because our salvation can never be lost. Our salvation can never be lost. Why? Because the Savior's presence can never be removed from us. Because the Father's love will never be withheld from us. Because the Spirit's ministry will never end in us. This is Trinitarian. And again, how essential was this for Jesus to emphasize Jesus will be taken away very soon, but the apostles need not fear. Christ indeed will indwell them. 
and dwell them forever through the Spirit. So that's the, the third promise here. We can rejoice in this. This is gospel truth. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Blessing of assurance and security. You understand the world cannot give any security, right? No security. Christ says it's found in him forever. Promise number four. Promise number four. Now Jesus steps out of this word picture, this vine branch imagery. He's gonna draw certain conclusions now from this. Promise number four. Christ now promises us access to God through prayer. Christ promises access, us access to God through prayer. Pick it up in verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you and mark this, this is the very definition of a Christian. A true believer rests on, he remains attached to Christ alone for salvation. We abide in him, but the true believer couples that with a love for Christ and a love for his word, his gospel, his words abide in us, remain in us. That's saving faith. That's abiding faith. And what is the promise for the believer then? Here it is, ask whatever you wish. Ask whatever you wish. Ask who? I'll drop down to the end of verse 16. Whatever you ask of the Father. Jesus is promising access to his Father through prayer. It's the gospel promise. And there's a contrast, though, that we need to see, a contrast. Contrast is between the promise of verse 6 and the promise of verse 7. So in verse six, the promise is a warning that every faithless, fruitless branch never attached to the vine will be, notice, cast into the fire and burned. That's the promise, that's the warning. That's the fate of everyone who does not abide in Jesus and Christ's words abide in them. The fate is, it's the garbage dump. That's your destiny. Now in verse seven, how different. The promise for those who abide in Christ is not the garbage dump. No, it's far greater than that. It's the house of God. It's the throne room of God. We can approach God. I use the word again. This is staggering that we can approach God. Not only does the master gardener sever us from this world through regeneration and then prune us to greater holiness and then seal us in his son through the spirit, but now Jesus promises that this same gardener, his father, he'll hear our prayers. Puny us, he'll hear our prayers in fact, he bids us to come to him, to make our requests of him, to cast all our anxieties on him. Why? Because the gardener loves us. The gardener cares for us. This is the love the father has for his son, 
that then now overflows to us who are indwelled by the Spirit, united to the Son. Look at the promise again. Come to my Father. Ask of my Father. Ask whatever you wish. And then the statement, and it will be done for you. Now, it's easy to parachute into here and say, look at this, whatever you ask, doesn't matter what it is. It's done. Well, we know that's not the case. Why? Because chapter 14, verse 13, there are qualifications for this, conditions, whatever you ask in my name, chapter 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. You have that same qualification repeated, chapter 14, verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Even in chapter 16, verse 23, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. That's the qualification. If our prayers are gonna be answered in the affirmative, we must ask in Jesus' name. What does that mean? It means asking according to his character. It means coming before the Father humbled, filled with praise, selfless, and asking in harmony with Christ's will. It means what Jesus said, your will be done. Not my will, your will be done. That's what the word name means throughout the scripture. Someone's name, not so much a distinguishing title, but the name was the reputation of the person. It's what we care most about. The honor of the person, the character, the glory of the person. probably why Jesus added that phrase and my words abide in you. Be controlled by my words. Be controlled by my gospel, my will. Conform your prayers to my desires. Our requests must be directed by his honor, his name, his majesty. Our wishes, our wants, that's the word Jesus uses, ask whatever you wish. Our wishes must be God's wishes. Uh, turn to James 4 just for a moment, James chapter 4. James 4, and just notice the contrast here. 4.3. How different this is, James 4.3. You ask, you pray, you make these requests, and do not receive, why? Because you ask with wrong motives. You're not asking according to Jesus' name, his honor, his reputation. You ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on God's pleasures, his purposes, for his glory? No, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's selfish prayer. That's the contrast that we see with the promise in chapter 15 here. My words abide in you. Be controlled by Christ's will, his glory, his name, his character. And when that takes place, the promise is glorious. When our wishes are God's wishes, when our wants are God's wants, and by the way, God's wants are always better than our wants. So when that's true, verse seven, ask whatever you wish in Jesus' name, according to his word, and it will be done for you. 
That's the promise. God will not only hear your prayers, he'll answer your prayers. But he'll do it in the best possible way. He'll do it for his glory and our good. Again, this is a theme that John picks up on throughout his writings. Listen to 1 John chapter five. I think he's thinking of what Jesus says in this chapter. 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence. This is the assurance which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, anything according to his will, according to his word, his honor, his name, he hears us, he answers us. He works for us on our behalf. And then the statement, if, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, again, based upon Christ's reputation, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. That's the assurance. When our requests are in alignment with Christ's will, those requests are as good as done. And those are the requests that are always what is best for us. So Jesus says here, come to the Father. Come to the Father. Don't be shy. Cast all of your cares upon him. He cares for you. Gospel privilege, gospel promise. So let's ask the question. How much do we take advantage of this gospel promise? How much do we take advantage of this? Do we see prayer as a gospel privilege or do we see it as drudgery? Do we enter into God's throne room selfishly motivated? Or do we place our wills, our wishes before him, seeking his honor before our own? Are we satisfied with his answers? I think if we're honest, we would agree with the hymn writer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. God's throne room, his house, is open to us, staggering. His home is open to his children through prayer. Again, a gospel privilege and promise. Leads into a fifth gospel promise here that Jesus makes. Fifth gospel promise. Promise number five, Christ promises us his eternal and infinite and never failing love. Christ promises us his eternal and infinite and never failing love. Again, amazing, verse nine. Just as the Father has loved me, stop there. Just as the Father has loved me, Understand what Jesus is doing. He's going to compare, he's going to compare his love for us to his father's love for him. Okay, so finish it. Just as the father has loved me, I also, in that way, I have also loved you. So if we're going to begin to grasp the implications of Jesus' love for us, we must first ask how did the father love his son? How did the Father love the Son? 
We want to understand the second half of verse nine. We need to understand the first half. And to answer that question, how did the father love the son? It's inexhaustible. Think of these characteristics. The father has loved the son eternally. Eternally, John 17, you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's an eternal love. The father has loved the son intimately. John 5, for the father loves the son and shows, that's the intimate nature now, shows him all things that he himself is doing. His eternal love and intimate love. This isn't a word, but it fits. The father has loved the son givingly. Okay, givingly, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. The father has loved the son unashamedly. Matthew 3, the father proclaims, this is my beloved son in him I am well pleased. He's unashamed of this love. Father has loved the son continually. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. He always loves me. He's always with me. We could add characteristics infinitely, perfectly, fully. When you think of the father's love for the son, there is no lack in that love. There's no imperfections in that love. There's no limitations. There's no deficiencies. It's boundless. It's abundant. It's complete. The Father's love for the Son is special. It is unique. It is divine. It's intertrinitarian love. So it's incomprehensible for us to fully grasp that kind of love. It's too wonderful to fully appreciate. And yet, and yet, Jesus says amazingly that this unique, special love the Father has for the Son is the model for his love for us. It's the model for his love for us. Finish the verse. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Paul describes this love, Christ's love for us, as love that surpasses knowledge. This love makes no sense. No sense. We understand why the Father would love the Son. We understand that. Christ is worthy of the Father's love. He shares the same nature as the Father. He's worthy of this love. Christ deserves the Father's love. He's holy, perfect, and righteous. Christ is exactly what we are not. Christ's love for us is wholly undeserved. It's entirely gracious. His love for us is not between equals. He's eternal, we're finite. Christ should not love us as the Father loves him. And yet still Christ says, 
The only love comparable to his love for us, the only love comparable is his father's love for him. Back to chapter 13, understand in these words, 13 verse one. Remember this statement, Jesus loves his own to the end. He loves his own to the max, to the full. What greater love can be given? There's no greater love that Christ could give to us. Why is Jesus emphasizing his love at this point? Because everything, so often everything in this world will, will tempt us to doubt his love for us. Even in this context, when we're being pruned for greater fruitfulness, it's easy to be tempted to doubt love. This wouldn't hurt if God loved me. Or perhaps, relate it back to verse seven, perhaps when God says no to our prayers, well, if he loved me, he'd say yes. Or maybe verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would hate you or love you. If you were of the world, it would love you, but you're not, so it hates you. Maybe if persecution comes, well, well God would spare me from that if he loved me. Christ says here, no, I have the greatest possible love for my people, the greatest possible love. This is why, finish verse nine, Jesus says, abide in my love. Abide in my love, cling to my love. Never doubt my love, believe it, cherish it. Despite the painful pruning that's coming, be satisfied with my love. It's the greatest love there is. Find your identity, your assurance in my love for you. You can understand as Jesus is taken away and he's not stopping any of this on this night, you can understand why the apostles might doubt his love. But the call here is abide in it, cling to it. Now, how do you know if you are cherishing Christ's love, clinging to it, abiding in it? Well, the answer is in verse 10. It's through your obedience to him. Through your obedience to him, we obey who we love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Cherishing Christ's love, clinging to his love is indeed what liberates us from our self-love. It liberates us to obey him. It frees us to obey him and live for him. When we cling to his love, we are freed. We are freed to obey him and love others. The axiom here in verse 10, the more we cherish Christ's love for us, the more we're humbled by it, the more it raises us in praise, the more, again, we cling to it, find our identity in it, the greater our obedience to him will be. His love for us indeed severs our love for ourself. I have quoted this many times 
It's the best quote, I think, in the book. It's called The, uh, the uh, Gospel Primer. And uh, I just want to read one, it one more time. Well, not one more time. I mean, I'm going to probably say it again in the next decade. Um, but the question is how, how does Christ's love for us then free us from our love from ourselves? How is that possible? How does clinging and abiding in his love free us to keep his commandments? Notice what the author writes. He says, first, Christ's love for me assures me that the love of Christ is infinitely superior to any love that I could ever give myself. And thus, the deeper I go into that love, the more I know how far his love for me surpasses even my own. His astonishing love for me renders self-absorption moot and frees me to move on to causes and interests far greater than myself. We can grasp and cling to Christ's love for us. Again, it frees us from being so absorbed in ourselves. Christ loves us far greater than we could ever love ourselves. Second, Christ's love also reveals to me the breathtaking glory and loveliness of God. And in so doing, it lures my heart away from love of self and leaves me enthralled by him instead. I love this. The more lovely he appears, the more self fades. If we love ourselves, guess what? We are not cherishing the loveliness of our Savior. The more self fades in the background like a former love interest who can no longer compete for my affections. When we abide and cling to Christ's love, when we begin to comprehend its breadth and its length, its width, its height, when we truly cherish Christ's love for us, that is when we are free to keep his commandments. Think of 2 Corinthians 5, 14. This is Paul's writing. The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ motivates us unto obedience. And then Jesus gives us proof of this. If this is this relationship for real? Where, where's the proof? How does cherishing God's love and following an obedience is that true? Is that actual? Well, Jesus says it is, and he uses himself as the example, verse 10. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. How did Christ remain faithful to his Father? Why did Christ only and always obey his Father? Christ's answer here is because he always clung to and cherished and never doubted his Father's love for him controlled him, compelled him. So all of that, bring it back to the promise. For all who abide in Christ and saving faith, Christ promises to love us with a love that can only be compared to his father's love for him. It's jaw-dropping. It's a love eternal in its breadth, infinite in its depth. why one commentator has put it this way, we so casually say God loves me. Let's put it in our context. We so casually say Jesus loves me. I mean, that's a children's song, right? Children's song. Oh, 
that the earth-shattering ramifications of Christ's love for you would bore into the depths of your soul. Christ, the creator of the universe, the holy one who dwells above the heavens, loves you. Though there is no reason for him to love you, he has chosen to love you. And here we can add, he has chosen to love us with the same love the Father has for him. It's the fifth promise the eternal love of Christ brings us to the final promise Jesus offers here. Promise number six, gospel promise, for all who abide in the vine, Christ promises us the fullness of joy. Promises us the fullness of joy. That's why we can begin the service by saying, joyful, joyful, we adore you. Notice verse 11, how Jesus brings all of this to a conclusion. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that not just joy, so that my joy, there's a difference, my joy. So we promised that we'd be loved by the son with the father's love. And now we're promised here to share in the son's joy. That my joy may be in you. That's how attached to the Trinity we are. The Father's love is our love, and now here the Son's joy is our joy. Kara, gladness, bliss, happiness. The very opposite of grief and sorrow. This is gospel joy. This is the same word used to describe the joy experienced in the presence of the Lord. This is the joy of the angels when someone comes to salvation, they rejoice in the heavens. This is the joy Christ experienced, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So this is joy that is deep and it's strong. It's unshakable. It's joy in the fullest and the purest. It can't be joy that's dependent upon the world. I mean, think of the situation here. Darkness is coming. This is a joy that's an overflow of the gospel. Turn to chapter 16, just notice this, chapter 16. Jesus will revisit this promise of joy. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. Christ will be taken, killed, you'll grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Why? Because Jesus will resurrect from the dead. This is joy in the resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 22. You too have grief now, but I will see you again. This is joy because Christ conquered death, sin. And your heart will rejoice. Watch this now. And no one will take your joy away from you. Why can no one take your joy away from you? Because sin has been defeated on your behalf. Our eternal hope is secure. Look at verse 24, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. We'll be joyful because we see God at work through us every day. Peter calls it joy inexpressible, joy inexpressible. David calls it the joy of our salvation. This is gospel joy. 
this world cannot give us lasting joy. If anything, the world takes away joy. But now notice the promise, and here's the conclusion to all of this. Notice that this promised joy is contingent joy. It's contingent joy. Look at verse 11 again. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That is to say this, I've spoken these things to you so that you will believe them and the overflow will be joy. The more we cherish Christ's words in this chapter, these gospel promises, the more we cherish them, the more of Christ's joy we will experience. If we're not joyful, maybe we're finding or trying to find joy in other things. Jesus says, find joy in these things I have spoken to you. The more fruit we bear for the Father's glory, the more we pray according to the Son's will, the more we cherish our Savior's love, the more we rest on his assurance, the more joy we will experience. So what we see throughout, the disciples were continually filled with joy, Paul, I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. How is that possible, Paul? You're afflicted on every side. He says, I'm joyful. His joy could not be taken from him. This is what embracing the glorious promises of the gospel does. It causes our joy, our joy to be made full. And that joy cannot be taken away. That's where Jesus ends, but let's bring it back to Ephesians 1. Can you understand why Paul writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. The blessings of Christ's gospel are unmatched. They have no end, no deficiency in them, and they are always for our joy. Here's the temptation that we will take these promises for granted. We'll become too familiar with them. Prayer would be that these promises would humble us in obedience, that they would raise us in praise, and that they would make us joyful for our Lord. Father, we are so thankful. I trust filled with thankfulness that this gospel is our gospel that these promises are promises for us, wholly undeserved, purchased by Christ, given to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, cause us to be joyful in this gospel, joyful in your Son. You give us that faithfulness to cling and cherish these promises for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.